good afternoon or good morning and all of all of a uh, Monday I thought I'd deleted all my notes for this and I really didn't want to go back and rewrite it all again so <laughs> that's good I've got it so we did Colossians 1 the first couple of chapters earlier in the week so this is Colossians part 2 so it's chapters 3 and 4 um, and a major challenging point from Paul is actually the verse that comes before this at the end of chapter 2 he says you have died with Christ therefore don't conform to the world and so we bounce straight on from that um, but before I go any, over anything else maybe take a minute to read through verses 1 to 15 of chapter 3 and take some time to note down what stands out most to you for me the first major thing that jumps out is that Paul is using active participatory language he says Put to death the sinful things lurking within you. Paul knows that even if we aren't actively engaging in harmful things, the potential is still there in our minds. And it is often when we think we are immune from temptations and sinful urges that we fall into them most readily. He's not saying that if we don't put them to death, we were never made righteous in the cross. But he is saying that if we are counted as Christians, then we should be living in the new life that Christ brings, and therefore, as Christians, put to death the things you know that are lurking deep within you. And, and he goes on to list a bunch of the most dangerous ones him, for him in verses 5 to 9. And notice that he doesn't mention murder or physical violence, and it's kind of a given that those are bad. And, and he's really speaking to what he knows about the church um, in Colossa, and what in his experience is most likely to harm both the individual and then always the rest of the believers and the rest of the people in the lives of the individuals. In verse 10, he uses active participatory language again to say, put on your new nature as you learn to know your creator and become like him. So we have this put to death the old nature, put on your new nature. And remember, remember, salvation comes from God. It is a gift of grace. But we need to be active in guarding our minds and practicing the new nature that comes from being Christians and by getting to know God, seeking God out as God has sought us out. And then from verse 12 to 17, Paul goes through some clear advice as to what the aspects of this new nature actually are. So we've got this list. It's a mercy and kindness, humility and gentleness, patience and making allowances for others' faults forgiving anyone who offends you, love, living in peace, and always being thankful. Take a minute and reflect on what Paul's on what Paul lists as these new nature characteristics. And where do you feel that you need to work on? And is there anything that stands out here that surprises you? So for me, I'm very quick to be annoyed at people, especially if I think that they're making that they've made like a big fault on something or if they've upset me. Which, of course, it means that I need to work on being more patient and gentle. It's often not people's fault. It's usually my fault for being a bit too hot-tempered. And and Paul is eager for the church to not be split. And he's not stupid. He knows that people of all cultures and backgrounds are coming together and filling the church. He knows there are people whose religious beliefs from before they were Christians will cause confusion 
you know, when they come together with other people who have different beliefs from when they were young, and when they all come together in Christ, there's all these like ideas bouncing off of one another, and and that's hence why he has so much teaching in his letters. He's always writing letters to these churches to clear up any confusion, so that the church can be unified in a common goal with common understanding. And um, and today. There is so much room for the church to, to band together, despite our different preferences in music or the way we do studies or liturgy or lack of liturgy. Um, that Paul would probably say to us that we should be going out to other churches and to support them and inviting them to come support us. And, and in verse 17, Paul says, then whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus. And that challenges me hugely. It's not just what we do, but whatever we say, we are representing the Lord. And I find it really easy to forget that. And I find it really easy, you know, to forget that as a Christian, we have been called to be set apart as the hands and feet of God. And if we aren't modelling that in our lives, something is going wrong. And that jumps back to what Paul was saying said. He would probably say, if you're not modelling that, then you probably need to put on something of Christ and put to death something of yourself. And the church, at least in the last half century, um, not half century, sorry, I meant to say half millennium, I'm talking hundreds of years, has not really been always the model of selfless love and humility. And it is so important for us as individuals and as the body of the church to take that seriously. Now, that that is a large meta challenge. Um, but with even within the letter to Colossians, what comes next and the instructions we're about to look at, they need to be placed in the framework of that last word, verse to be a representative of the Lord. Paul here is talking about a very meta narrative, like the big picture things, as well as small scale specific church by church things. And then we come on to this lovely part about instructions for husbands and wives. So before we delve into that, have a read of Colossians 3, 18 to 25. Verses like the first one of these have caused a lot of problems. And I've seen a lot of the problems and confusions coming out, especially in the last few decades. And it's, I think, always due to a big misunderstanding of the time Paul lived in, the culture Paul lived in, the words in the Greek that Paul would actually have used. And looking at Paul in his entirety, not just picking bits out and going, well, it says that in the Bible, therefore. Remember, Paul endorses um, Phoebe to deliver his super important letter to the Roman church. And not only is she the deliverer, but the person who takes the message is very likely to be the person who would have read the letter out to the body of the church in Rome, and possibly even the person that would explain bits of the letter and what they meant. Paul gives huge respect and love and value to women, not just in general, but also as individuals in responsible positions in the church. And with that as a bit of a framework to understand Paul's attitude to women, we come to this first. Wives, submit to your husbands. And that is a huge can of worms to open up if we don't understand what he's talking about. Submission is not slavery or inferiority. In this sense, submission is the choice to freely support the leadership of another. Now, nowadays... Submitting, like wives submitting to husbands, might not be the right move in all situations. 
Um, but remember the time this letter was written in. It is very possible that Christian women who at that time have discovered this freedom in Christ idea suddenly found the idea of submitting to anybody really difficult. Um, if you look back at our study in Ephesians, submission in Ephesians is described as submitting to husbands as you submit to Christ. And But remember that Paul doesn't just let that lie there on his own. He's not just saying, wives submit to husbands, husbands do what you want. He's saying, husbands, you must love your wives and never treat them harshly. The model of Christ is one of submission, because that means selfish interests taking a back seat to serve others, and love, which is best modelled by selfless living and service. Paul wants the families of believers to be acting in a co-serving lifestyle, supporting and giving of themselves, and not living towards only self-interest. You might have very strong opinions about passages like this, and we're in 2020, our culture might believe that that is a very, very ancient and sexist attitude, and that today we have progressive gender movements um, that have made things much better but I would simply point out that even though gender roles have changed a lot, divorce rates and family splits, even in the church, are still really high today. It hasn't stopped families from breaking down, because the real key to families not breaking down is to model serving and selfless love like Christ. Sorry, that was a little off-topic rant, but maybe take a minute and have a read through those verses. And if you want to cross-reference, read back through Ephesians 5, where Paul addresses similar themes to a similar kind of city in a similar location in the world. Have a think about the culture and the potentially huge changes in lifestyle that will come when all these blends of lifestyles come together in Christ. And think about what implications do these verses have for you in your relationships. There's no shame or judgment, just simply a question. How do we serve and love one another more? And, and the last part of chapter 3 is similarly contextual. If you read it through, Paul's not saying that slavery is good or desirable, but he's not stupid. Slavery is such a massive economic thing that to make slavery illegal would take such a monumental national effort that it is still not totally gone 2,000 years after this letter was written. Paul is framing the culture he's in, he's framing it in Christ, and he's saying, look, if you're a slave owner and you've become a Christian, you need to treat them fairly and justly. Basically, be more incredible to them than anyone would ever imagine. And if you're a slave who has become a Christian, don't then spit in your master's face. Love your master, even if he's your enemy. Work so incredibly well for that person that you're pleasing them, work so well for them, even if they don't know you're working well for them. Again, it's serving, it's selflessness, it's loving others above yourself, just like Christ. Uh, and as with all of Paul's letters, he always ends with greetings from various people. And I, and I believe he does this both to give the churches he's writing to knowledge of people they might know, but also to encourage the readers. These people are far away, and they need to know that their prayers and love are always with them. And it's really important to remind each other of this today and stay in touch with our encouragement and our support. His final instructions, though, and our final thought for Colossians is in the first few chapters, um, sorry, first few verses of chapter 4. In verse 2, Paul says, 
devote yourselves to prayer with an alert mind and a thankful heart. And in verse 5, he says, live wisely amongst those who are not believers. And in verse 6, let your conversation be gracious and attractive. We should be praying regularly, giving thanks to God, and also keeping our minds safe and alert. Remember what we said earlier about the sinful nature that lurks within us, just waiting for opportunities. We should be praying, but we should be maintaining an alert mind and safeguarding what's going on in our minds and live wisely amongst unbelievers. If if we don't live wisely, if we don't pray with an alert mind, we can very easily fall into a conforming lifestyle to the world and then we won't be any different. And even verse 6, where Paul says, let your conversation be gracious and attractive, he's thinking again about loving other people, especially those who don't yet know Christ. He's not saying, between Christians you should be loving, more than there's an unbeliever, your conversation should be judgmental. He's saying, no, make your conversation attractive, be gracious to these people, they're people. People are the image of God, love those people. And that's the major themes of Colossians. As always, if you want to discuss anything, I have lots of time. Please get in touch. Thank <laughs> you.